my opening message, you all heard me talk about how we're living in a world that is constantly in search of purpose. By the same token, we're also living in a world that is constantly in search of truth. They're looking for it here and there and in every which direction, and all the while, it is right beneath their nose in the treasure house of God's Word, and they don't even realize it. A number of years ago when I was pastoring, we launched a men's school of ministry through which we were training men and sending them out into a mission field, and we found a piece of property where we were going to put this school, and we were doing some landscaping, and of all the trees on the property, there was only one tree that we decided was an obstacle that we needed to cut down. If you know anything about cutting trees down, first, of course, you've got to cut the stalk, and then you've got to remove the stump. Well, to do that, you've got to dig a ditch around the stump, pour water into the ditch, loosen up the roots, and then yank it out. So after cutting the stalk down, we began to dig a ditch around the stump when all of a sudden in the process, as the pickaxe penetrated the earth, we suddenly heard the sound of breaking glass, only to look down and find wads of cash sticking out of the earth. 50 million, no, just kidding. <laughs> I saw the look in some of your eyes. What's that address, right? It was actually $2,200, but that was nothing to sneeze at because the bills dated back to the 1930s. And back in the 1930s, you can buy a brand new car for about $700. The average income was a, a couple thousand dollars. You could buy a house for four or $5,000. So $2,200 back in that day was a massive, massive treasure. The man who said money doesn't grow on trees was right. He just forgot to look under them. And I couldn't help but wonder of all the people that lived on that property since the 30s over the course of decades, how many of them maybe even sat on that very spot weeping about their financial woes when right beneath their nose was a treasure beyond description. Brothers, there's only one thing more tragic than having a treasure buried beneath your nose and not knowing that it's there. It's knowing that it's there and never digging it out and making use of its riches. My heart has been to dig out the treasure of God's word for you all. My hope is that you'll be determined to be doers of it. I've heard a few of you talk about how convicted you've been by these messages. I want you to understand that I share these truths with you out of love and care. We could all, you know, hung out over here and just, you know, had fun and sung kumbaya, and I could have told you some nice things to tickle your ears and make you feel good. What's that going to do, right? It's so rare that men get together like this, and brothers, I want you to go back home transformed. Remember, the theme of this conference, right, is redeem the time. We live in days that are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And so I hope you understand conviction is good. Pain is good. If you don't have pain, you would have destroyed yourself a long time ago. You put your hand on something sharp. If you don't have pain, you just keep going and cut yourself up. Put your hand on something hot, you'd burn yourself up. Pain is good. It alerts us to something that isn't good so that we can get things right. So I hope you understand that. But I also want you to remember what Jesus told us about himself through his word. It tells us in Hebrews that we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, it says we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That means when Jesus looks at you, he's not looking at you with condemnation. As you sit there and you're, you're feeling convicted over the things maybe you're, you're falling short in, he looks at you with sympathy, with compassion, because he was tempted in every point as you are yet without sin. And he tells you, come boldly to me. So I want you to remember that, brothers. Don't, don't leave condemned. That, that would be the wrong thing. If you know the Lord, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But receive the conviction and, and thank God for it and be determined to come to him and let him do work in your heart. Father, touch us with your word tonight and be glorified. 
We want to be vessels of honor. We want to be used by you. So help us tonight as we hear this message to be transformed for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. The message that I want to share with you tonight was birthed out of a European tour that I took part in a number of years ago. Ray Comfort, our fearless leader, came up with this harebrained idea to take a group of us to Europe to travel through 13 countries in 13 days and record 13 episodes for our television program. And if it was up to him, it would have been 13 countries and 13 hours on jet-powered roller skates. And so we took the plunge, we hopped on a plane and flew through the friendly skies. We landed in London and went from uh, London, England, and went from England to Belgium, to Luxembourg, to Holland, to France, to Monaco, to Italy, to Switzerland, to Germany, to the Czech Republic, to Austria, to Hungary, to Romania. I'm almost breathless saying it. You can imagine how exhausting it was, and yet at the same time, how wonderful and exhilarating it was. To have stood outside of the royal palace in Monaco to tell people about the King of Kings to have walked through the Oktoberfest telling people about him who can give them something to drink after which they will never thirst again, to have stood with the Eiffel Tower in the background and to preach open air to crowds of people telling them about the one who stands supreme above all else. On the streets, and cafes, on trains, everywhere we went, we proclaimed Christ, and it was one of the most euphoric and exhilarating and phenomenal trips of my life. I would be remiss this evening if I were not to also tell you that there was a flip side to that. There was some massive heartache and massive grief and massive pain because sadly we ended up witnessing firsthand what we had heard about the declining moral and spiritual state of Europe. It's common knowledge that Europe has forsaken its godly heritage, that it has walked away from its Christian roots. It's one thing to hear about it. It's another thing to actually be there in the atmosphere and to experience it. To see the godlessness, the new age philosophy that has pervaded the nation and the continent, rather, all throughout Europe. The the religious deadness, the churches that have been turned into pubs and into mosques, And probably the thing that stood out most to me was the rampant atheism. To run into young people on the streets and to try to tell them about Jesus and they barely have any concept about who he is. To go into cathedrals that were once supposedly dedicated to the glory of God and the person touring you through it not knowing anything about the Savior that this church is supposed to represent. To go to spots where martyrs shed their blood for the sake of the gospel and the tour guides know absolutely nothing about that. Our hearts were broken and shattered beyond word. And for me, it came to a climax when we were walking through Amsterdam. We looked down these corridors with windows lit and red, with young women standing behind them, prostituting their bodies to perverted men walking by, 1,200 prostitutes in the red light district of Amsterdam. And as I stood there and I looked at all of this, My heart was broken beyond words, and I had to ask myself the question, Lord, how? How did this happen? Especially when I remembered what Europe once was. Europe was once the cradle of Christian civilization. Europe, right, was a home to the Reformation. It was in Europe where Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door in Wittenberg and sparked a revival that transformed the entire 
world and changed the very course of human history. Europe's the home of the modern missionary movement. One commentator said the following, he said, the 19th century was the greatest century for missions. In 1793, the modern missionary movement was launched by William Carey of England. In just 100 years, Bible translations multiplied from 50 to 250, and missions organizations from 7 to 100. Protestant missionaries were sent out to every corner of the world. Whole tribes were converted and nations discipled. Within a century, by 1900, the number of professing Christians had more than doubled from, listen, 215 million to 500 million. And it all began in Europe. Europe is home to some of the greatest men of God in the history of the church, men like Martin Luther and William Tyndale and John Wesley and George Whitfield and John Bunyan and Charles Spurgeon and William Carey and John Knox and many, many, many others. And so as I was in the midst of this atmosphere and I was recalling what Europe once was, I had to ask myself that question that I mentioned, Lord, how in the world did this happen? And brothers, I want to answer this question for you this evening. How did Europe end up in this dark and dismal predicament? There are many theories, there are many answers that are given by many different people, and while we might find legitimacy in some of those answers, I assure you that all of them ultimately trace their roots back to one thing, and I believe that it is the weakening of the Christian family, which is the nucleus of society. I believe that the deterioration of the Christian family due to parents failing to proactively and deliberately and intentionally pass down a godly heritage to the next generation is the root cause of what we're seeing in Europe today. And I want us this evening to probe that and ask of how that affects us here in the United States of America. And while I'm talking to parents a lot in this message to you as fathers, if you're in here today and you're not a father, but you want to be one, and you're in here and you have nieces and nephews, you have grandchildren maybe, your kids are grown now, or, or you have influence and impact in the life of anyone from the next generation, this message applies to you. And brothers, I want you to know that I deliver this message to you today with a great sense of concern and a great sense of urgency. Because brothers, America is not far behind Europe. We are behind Europe, and I thank God for that, but we are headed in that same direction, and it's time that we as men wake up and do something about it. Al Mohler said the following in an article. He said, in USA Today's cover story of the decline of Christian, Christianity in Western Europe raises the question of America's future. In many ways, America seems to be following the European example, though several years behind. Yet the pace of moral transformation in the United States may indicate that America is fast catching up with the European model of secularization. Even as the vast majority of Americans claim to be Christians, the indicators of social morality and commitment to marriage and children indicate that America may be moving closer to the European precedent. The evidence is mounting, and the current shape of secular Europe should serve as a powerful warning. Without a robust commitment to Christian truth, Christian morality simply fades away. It's true. When there isn't a robust commitment to the truth of God's word and passing it down deliberately 
and proactively to the next generation, then everything becomes in jeopardy. And as at present, brothers, as we sit here under the sound of God's word, there is a radical assault by militant atheism on our nation and secularism unlike anything we have ever seen in our nation's history. There is a new movement of sharp, sophisticated, articulate, media-savvy atheists who are invading every sector of our society. And let me tell you, brothers, they are extremely, extremely effective. You guys may remember some of the books that were on the New York Times bestseller list, books like The God Delusion, Letters to a Christian Nation, and God, The Failed Hypothesis, How Science Shows That God Does Not Exist. These books are not worthy to even be used as doorstops, and they're on the New York Times bestseller list. An interesting article made this statement. The National Trade Association of the U.S. book publishing industry, the Association of American Publishers, reports a rapid increase in sales of atheist books over recent months. Over the same time, there was a sharp drop of religious book sales. The first three I read were the ones that are at the top of the list, but there is a plethora of these sorts of books that are invading our society, books like The End of Faith, God is Not Great, Atheism, The Case Against God, Why I Rejected Christianity, The Atheist Bible, an illustrious collection of irreverent thoughts. These are the books that we're finding lying around on kids' desks and in schools and on shelves and in our Starbucks coffee shops. And these are the books that are destroying the hearts and the minds and the souls of our children. And brothers, when I talk about atheism, I'm not just talking about it in the sense of its maybe explicit form, but the godless agenda that it spurns. Because when you remove God from the equation of life, whether you acknowledge his existence or not, you are headed toward massive, massive, massive danger. But I want you to understand that as I share this message with you this evening, it's a message of hope. Why? Because God is able to change the trend. If that wasn't the case, there's no point in me preaching this message at all, but the fact is our God can work and move, and there are times when men will arise, they'll draw that circle around themselves and say, revival must begin inside, and after that revival happens, they step out of that circle, and they can light a fire that can blaze like an inferno and transform the world. That's what I long to see for you, my brothers, for God to move in you and work in you and extraordinary, extraordinary ways. We are living in an extraordinarily godless climate today that is developing in our nation. I have been traumatized by the things that I have seen coming forth from young people today. I was sitting with a brother at dinner this evening who's a correctional officer in in the juvenile realm, and he was telling me about the things that he's been seeing inside these juvenile halls, things that he had never, ever seen before, the destructive devastation of kids being raised where there is not that authority in the home. And even some, this one young man in particular wanted to remain in juvenile hall because he had structure, he had safety, he had the ability to receive instruction. How tragic, a young man wanting to stay in juvenile hall because he's afraid of of the dysfunction that's out there in his own family. Some of you may say, but brother, we, we've seen godlessness before. Come on, what are you talking about? Listen to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. 
For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. Does that sound familiar, brothers? And I know some of you, again, will say, but we have seen generations where there's been godlessness before, but I assure you, and especially those of you that have been around a little longer than some of us here, have you ever seen a generation as godless and as hard-hearted and as rebellious as a generation in the midst of which we live? And it's getting worse, brothers. It's getting worse day by day by day. Kids are unbelievably godless today. The stories abound from brutally beating classmates and posting it on the internet, starting an epidemic trend of texting pornographic images in mass, beating and killing homeless people for sport, sleeping with their teachers, killing their parents, committing mass suicide on their high school campuses. When have we seen this in past generations? And the age of the children committing some of these atrocities continues to decrease. Listen to this article. A local paper in Georgia reported that 11 students from a third grade class at Center Elementary School in Waycross brought to school a broken steak knife, a roll of duct tape, handcuffs, ribbon, and a crystal paperweight in a bid to kill their teacher. Third graders, eight-year-olds, 11 and 12-year-old girls created a YouTube video called Six Ways to Kill Piper. And they drew pictures of hanging their fellow student, shooting her, poisoning her, throwing her off of a cliff. Not just boys, girls now, 11 and 12 years old. Gay male senior Sergio Garcia from Fairfax High School in California wins the title of prom queen. And what broke my heart was when I watched this video, hearing the teachers and and the administration laud this and praise this, and it's tragic. And after he won that title, prom queen, he said, quote, for the first time in my life, I finally realize who I really am. Lesbian couple in California who say their 11-year-old son, Tommy, wants to be a girl named Tammy are giving their child hormone blockers that delay the onset of puberty so that he can have more time to decide if he wants to change his gender. (laughs) These are minor in light of what we continue to hear that's happening all across our nation. And the influence of these things, brothers, on our society and on our children is massive. And what are we doing? We're looking to politics as our hope in our country in every election, right? We get excited and we say, oh, this is going to change things. This is going to transform things. And trust me, I'm the first to encourage Christians to be involved in the biblical process. We need to run for office. We need to vote for godly candidates. We need to champion righteous causes. But I assure you, brothers, that the answer is not in politics. The answer is in the change of the hearts of men and women, which will transform families, which will transform societies, which will impact nations, which will impact the world for the glory of God. The change of the heart, and it has to, and it must begin with the family. And so, what does God's Word have to say on the matter? And how can we as men 
in light of the youngsters that have been entrusted into our care, whether it's our children or grandchildren or nieces or nephews or the friends who have allowed us to speak into the lives of their kids or it's with our youth groups or what have you. What are we going to do to impact the next generation? We have the biblical model, Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. If there's anything I've discovered over the course of my 25 years of being a pastor, it's that we as people are professionals at looking in every which direction for the answer when, like truth, it's right beneath our nose and we don't even realize it. And oftentimes when we read a passage like this in Ephesians chapter 6, we end up feeling somewhat intellectually insulted. Like, Paul, give us something more intricate, something more involved, something a little more sophisticated. This is, come on, what do you mean, children, parents, what are you talking about? And you know what I love about is the simplicity in this. Paul didn't have some 400-point outline, do this and that and that and this and the other. It was a simple, basic formula that can revolutionize the world. Paul did in these couple of verses more than all of the social gurus and all of the philosophers and psychologists and psychiatrists, those that have written books and produced training courses and, and have, have taught the world. He has done in these few verses more than all of them combined. Why? Because brothers, this is the word of the living God. Paul, as an apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wasn't uttering opinions. He wasn't giving suggestions. He wasn't giving good ideas. He was speaking from the very heart of God and explaining to us what it is that can transform the world. And it's this basic, simple foundation. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. For the good of children, the promise of God is given that in walking in obedience and in honor toward their parents, there is longevity and wellness that is blessed. There is what Paul Tripp calls the circle of safety and blessing. And when kids venture out of it, they are in the danger zone. But notice what Paul says, and you fathers do not provoke your children wrath, but what? Bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Well, what is the training and admonition of the Lord for children? Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. Who's entrusted with the responsibility of training them up in the ways of the Lord? It is us, and he, notice he says, fathers. You fathers are given the responsibility of pouring into the next generation that they might arise and walk in the fear of God and make his name famous throughout the earth. And if ever there has been a generation during which fathers have been marginalized most. It's the one that we're living in today, brothers. I don't know if you've ever clued into it, but every movie, every sitcom, even radio advertisements that I hear on Christian radio are constantly degrading men, constantly creating the Homer Simpson syndrome for fathers, the, the idiot, the buffoon, the one that the kids roll their eyes at, oh, dad. And what are we doing as men? We're marching to the beat of that drum, Brothers, this is not something that we need to earn. This is something that God has said we are entrusted with. It's a responsibility that we have been given. We are the ones called to train our children up in the ways of 
the Lord. God has given us as men a distinct authority and a distinct capacity to influence and to shape. You know the overwhelming majority of young men that are involved in homosexuality and in deviant lifestyles and in transgenderism did not have fathers that were present. Not all of them, but many, many, many of them. The young ladies that go off and sleep around and destroy their lives with other men, it's typically because their fathers were not there bringing them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Or they were there, but they were not the, the loving, kind, tender fathers. They were doing what Paul says here. They were provoking them to wrath rather than not provoking them as he exhorted us. You think of God's command to the children of Israel in Deuteronomy 6, 6-9, and these words which I command you today... It, shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Our call is in every situation, in every area and arena of life, we're being proactive and determined to pour into our children the truths of God. Psalm 78, give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your heart to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them, listen, from their children, telling to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wonderful works that he has done. Now listen to this. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed the law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children that the generation to come might know them, the children who would be born, that they may arise and declare them to their children, that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Brothers, this is what is called a multi-generational vision. It's not just about me and, and what's going on right now in the immediate time that I have, but I'm thinking about my children and their children and their children and their children's children, and it's thinking, Lord, I want you to be made known that the, the things I've received in truth, I want to pass on, that it might continue to go. Why? So that you, as I talked about in my opening message, might be glorified. Deuteronomy 5.29, God speaking says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. When God says, oh, we need to listen. This is God expressing the, the deep passion of his heart that we would pass on the truth of God's word to others. You look throughout the Proverbs and you, you see it's repeated, this model of passing on God's truth to others. Proverbs 1, 8 through 9, my son, hear the instruction of your father and do not forsake the law of your mother for there will be a graceful ornament on your head and chains about your neck. Proverbs 3, 1 through 2, my son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands for length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Proverbs 4, 1 through 4, hear my children the instruction of a father and give attention to no understanding, for I give you good doctrine. Do not forsake my law. When I was my father's son, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, he also taught me and said to me, let your heart retain my words, keep my commands and live. Isn't that beautiful? My father taught me now I'm teaching you. I know that for some of you in here, you didn't have that father who taught you. But guess what? You can change the trend. I was talking to some brothers over lunch the other day, and we were saying how awesome it is that God has changed the trend with some of our children. We were lost, blind, 
into all kinds of trouble. Our kids are so detached from that because God saved us and now we're raising them up. We're changing the trend. Proverbs 5, 1 through 2, my son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding that you may preserve discretion and your lips keep knowledge. Finally, Proverbs 7, 1 through 4, my son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live and the law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call understanding your nearest kin. What a beautiful model that is of a father sitting down with his children and proactively passing truth onto them with the hope that that truth will be passed on to the next generation. So brothers, I ask you, for those of us that have young sons and young daughters at home still today, are we doing that? Those of us us that have older sons and older daughters today, are we using our influence to impact their lives? I have adult sons and I still meet with them weekly and pour God's word into their lives because I'm their father and I love them and they're open to receive from me. I know we all have different situations. Again, this isn't a one size fits all. Your, your children may be rebellious. Your children may want nothing to do with you because they've chosen their own path or direction. But are we determined and are we attempting to do that? What about your nieces and your nephews? These little ones that look up to you. Do you ever just pause instead of just being at a family get together and you're doing your thing? Do you ever stop and say, they look up to me. I can speak into their lives and impact them with truth. Even your friends' kids, when when they're over, do you just kind of like have this blank sort of spot in your mind where it's a mental block, you don't even think about like looking at them and talking to them and, and just encouraging them and speaking truth into their lives? Do we have a deliberate, proactive, intentional plan for discipling our children and the young people in our lives in the ways of God? Or are we by default sacrificing them on the altar of this godless age to be discipled by the likes of Snoop Dogg and Eminem and 50 Cent and Lady Gaga. Because, brothers, that's what's happening. I'll see kids walking down the street with these two sewage pipes connected to their heads called AirPods. And I assure you, they're not listening to wonderful sermons and music worshiping the Lord. But they are being shaped by the godless philosophies of this world? Do we have a plan? We plan for a lot of things in life, don't we? No one wakes up one morning at the age of 65 and says, you know what, I think I'll start planning for retirement today. No one wakes up and says, hey, I want to have the wedding of the century. I want to invite 400 guests and it's a million dollar budget and I think we'll do it tomorrow. No one says, hey, let's go on vacation. Oh, okay, let's go right now, four-week vacation to Europe. Uh, Let's just get our tickets today, hop on a plane and go. No, we plan for things in life far in advance. How about planning to shape the young people in our lives in a determined and in a proactive way? I remember a number of years ago when I was out sharing the gospel, I came across a young man who was about 20 years old, and I shared the gospel with him, and I remember he looked at me with the most pained look in his eye, and he said, you know what, my, past, my dad was a pastor all my life growing up, and never once did I hear him talk about God outside of church. And man, my heart just sank, and I thought, how tragic that is. How tragic that is. Brothers, what are our children, what are the young people in our lives seeing from our life? I remember years ago, Dr. Dobson was speaking at an event that I was speaking at, and I was seated seated at dinner with him and his wife. I remember 
they talked about how many years they'd been married. It was 60 something years. And his wife put her arm on his back and began to stroke his back. And she said, you know, the secret to the success of our marriage is that the same man that you see in public is the same man in private. I thought, wow, how convicting that is, right? I've often said who we are in private when we're most comfortable, least self-conscious, and there's no one to impress. That is who we are. And that's an ouch moment, isn't it? Because when we're around other people, we put our best foot forward, and we're trying to maintain some kind of image. But when we're at home, there's no one to impress. We're comfortable, relaxed. That's when it all comes out. And brothers, as we evaluate that, we have a lot of repenting to do. Because there's nothing that embitters the hearts of children more than hypocrisy in their parents. And God wants to transform that. He wants to change that. What are our children seeing from our lives? Actions speak priority And I love the saying that says, we will always be who we've always been if we always do what we've always done. Sometimes that's just how it is. We're just kind of going with the flow. We're busy, I understand. We're working. We're trying to take care of our family. We've got pressures on every side, trying to pay for our kids' school and take care of them and raise them. And I understand, brothers, trust me. I've got five children. I have our first grandchild, who, by the way, thinks I'm the greatest thing in the universe. And can you blame them? (laughs) But I understand that pressure. I understand it's difficult. But there comes a time when, as men, we have to stop and say, no, man, I'm done with this self-pity. I'm done with this, oh, woe is me. I need to stand up and recognize the time is ticking. I have young people that I can influence and shape, and something needs to change here. Do we have that multi-generational vision? Do we have a passion to pour into our children and the young people in our lives to impact them that we may raise up a godly heritage? What are they seeing in our lives? Are we allowing them to be raised by the culture of the world, or are we teaching them to grow up and have vision for godliness themselves? And man, are children impressionable. I remember when I was in elementary school, we had a long-term substitute teacher. Her name was Mrs. Ioni. She never let you forget her name. She told us, I-O-N-E. So I still remember her name to this day. But I remember one time a kid in class was saying some filth words, and man, she stopped him dead in his tracks. I mean, you could hear a pin drop. She goes, hey, she gets in this like preacher posture, you know. She said, how dare you with that same tongue that you pray to God with say those filthy words? I remember going, whoa, (laughs) Mrs. Ioni's cool, you know. She's bad. Don't mess with Mrs. Ioni. Would a teacher dare say that in a public school today? Tell the kid he can be homosexual, transgender, or or whatever, sexual. Oh, great, no problem. But say anything to him about God and forget it. But she had an impact on me. I passed that on to my children. I remember growing up in our neighborhood, and we had these Christian neighbors. And one day I was outside, and they were talking to their children. The little boy, especially, he was probably two years old, and he went to touch something. And his dad stops him. He goes, hey, son, you know that daddy loves you, right? little boy nods his head. He says, son, if you touch that, that's not going to be good for you. And daddy loves you and wants what's best for you. And so, son, I'm telling you not to touch that. Now, if you touch it, son, because I love you, I'm going to have to discipline you. But if you don't touch it, all's going to be well, and that's going to be the best thing for you. Now, son, go ahead and make your decision. I remember seeing this little boy look at his dad, look at the object, look at his dad, look at the object, and go off and play with something else. And I'm like, woo! 
I mean, I remember deciding right there and then, I was probably 10 years old, thinking that's how I'm going to raise my kids. And I've done that very same thing with my own kids. I remember one day we were outside too, and there were these neighbor kids out there, and, and, and one of my kids went to do something, and I go, hey, sweetheart, you know that daddy loves you, right? <laughs> and I went through the whole thing, and I saw this kid, he's sitting on his bike, and he's like, Oh, like, what did I just witness, right? And I thought, yes, Lord, pass it on, pass it on. Kids are impressionable. I thank God for my godly father-in-law, Ray Comfort. You know, I've told some of you, he's been my father-in-law now for almost 26 years, next month, and he was famous before I knew him. I was radically impacted by him, and by God's grace, he ended up becoming my father-in-law. And you know, when you, when you happen to meet someone who's famous, you end up getting disillusioned because we always build people up and then we recognize they weren't all that we thought they were cracked up to be. But it's been the exact opposite with him. He's been my father-in-law 26 years and my respect for him only continues to grow. And how wonderful it is that he has left a heritage for his grandchildren. He's dedicated children's books that he's written to them. And I've been able to sit down with them and read them books and say, your grandpa wrote this and now they're going to pass it on to their kids. That they have... A, countless videos and television programs and movies made by their grandpa watching him proclaim the gospel to others. I remember once my wife's grandparents were in town, her mom's parents, and they were visiting, and you know, they were in their 80s, and we would walk by their room where they were staying. Every day at the same time, we would hear them as they were on their knees praying for their children and their grandchildren and their great-grandchildren. One time her cousin was doing a rite of passage and they video recorded it in New Zealand and everyone was going around and, and giving advice and it came to the, her grandma, her cousin's grandma and her grandma and she was just like, she, she, her hair white beaming, her face beaming with joy and she began to dispense this godly wisdom to her granddaughter. And my wife looked over at me with tears streaming down her face and she said, she is so godly. Is there any greater compliment that could ever be given to a human being? They are godly. They love the Lord. They fear the Lord. Brothers, we need to wake up and ask ourselves, what are we going to do to impact this next generation? I remember years ago, in the middle of the night, I was awakened by a scream. My wife was down the hallway in our children's room and she was screaming. I get out of bed and I run down the hallway. I go into the room. I see my daughter who was seven years old at the time. She was writhing on the bed, foam coming out of her mouth. Her eyes rolled back and she was shaking. We had no idea what was going on. We called 911. They came. We came to realize she had a seizure. We were in the hospital and I remember she was hooked up with tubes from every part of her body and, and, and I sat there with tears streaming down my face and I thought, oh Lord, right now, if she needed my heart, I would rip it out of my chest and give it to her. If she needed every drop of blood in my body, I would give it. If she needed my life, I would die for her and it came back to heart and mind easy. You're willing to die for your daughter. Are you willing to live and further godliness in her? And that's our challenge. We are stewards of the young people that God has placed in our lives. And the question is, is what are we going to do? What are we going to do? God wants us to raise them in tenderness, in gentleness, in humility. J.C. Ryle said, Now children's minds are cast in much the same way as our own. Sternness and severity of manner will chill them and throw them back. It shuts up their hearts and you will weary yourself to find the door, but let them only see that you have an affectionate feeling toward them, that you are really desirous to make them happy and do them good, that if you are disapprove of them, it is 
intended for, or discipline, and it is intended for their profit, and that like the pelican, you would give your heart's blood to nourish their souls. Let them see this, I say, and they will soon be all your own, but they must be wooed with kindness if their attention is ever to be won, and surely reason itself will teach us this lesson. Children are weak and tender creatures, and as such, they need patient and considerate treatment. We must handle them delicately like frail machines, lest by rough in interaction, we do them harm, more harm than good. They are like young plants and need gentle watering, often but little at a time. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. We need to be tender and gentle with our children, brothers. I remember years ago taking my daughter out after a rough day at home with her mom, and I took her out and took her to the spot where her mom and I had gotten married, where we exchanged our first kiss together on the porch of this old historic home. And I talked to her about her mom and how much I loved her and what an amazingly godly woman she is. And then I transitioned from that and to tenderly and gently talk to her about the issue that she was having and, and to, to exhort her and to call her to repentance. And I remember afterward, we left and got in the car and she just looked at me and said, Papa, thank you for loving me and caring about me so much to speak to me the truth. I remember thinking, Lord, thank you for hiding, <laughs> hiding it from her the rest of the time when I was a big buffoon, right? And so I took her out to ice cream and I bought her a horse and a yacht and an island. <laughs> we dads are softies, right? Remember another time, my daughter, I disciplined her, our, it's our oldest daughter, and uh, she continued to cry afterward, which is uncharacteristic, because after I discipline my children, a lot of times I'll tickle them and walk out of the room laughing. Why? Because it's over. It's not punishment. We don't punish our children. Punishment is retribution. God doesn't punish us. There's no condemnation. It's discipline for their good and their betterment. But this time she was still crying. I said, sweetheart, why are you still crying? She said, Papa, I'm not crying because of the discipline. I'm crying because God has given me a father who loves me enough to discipline me. And that's when I said, Lord, thank you for blinding her all the other times, right? Because I've been a blow and I've messed up so much, but God is gracious. We need to be men who humble ourselves to apologize to our children because nothing touches them more than that. To be able to say, I am sorry, I blew it, because they know that we are worse losers than we know we are. But when we try to hide it, it hardens their hearts. But when we come to them and just are gentle and frank and tender with them, it tenderizes them and it gives them an example for who they're supposed to be. And brothers, I just want to say, listen to those of you right now that are feeling, man, I blew it, I'm a loser, I messed up in how I raised my children. Listen, it's not always dependent on what we did. There is what, what has been called by others shaping influences, but then there's that Godward orientation. You could have done everything right, but your children made the choice to rebel and turn from the Lord. And if you realize, wow, I didn't invest and pour into my children proactively and intentionally, don't be condemned. Recognize you can make it right by apologizing for where you blew it, and then you can think, okay, well, what can I do now to heal that relationship and be an influence into their life? And then the lives of maybe your grandchildren and, 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 and other young people that God has brought into your path. And guys, let me just say, there's so much that you can do with your children there's so many resources out there at the, the click of a fingertip. There are so many books and, and so many resources. And I don't have time here. I have a whole list of, of examples of things we've done with our children. But I'll leave you with one final example as I close. There's something that we did with our kids that we called Family Night. And there's this, these books that, that I had learned about called the Family Night Treasure Chest. And they're filled with ideas of crafts and all these kinds of different things that you can do with your kids that, that pass on to them a godly heritage. But we ended up doing one thing in particular. I remember I, I told my wife that day before I left for work, if the kids do anything when I'm gone, 
uh, just write it down. Don't discipline for it, uh, them for it, and I'll, we'll take care of it when I get home. So I remember I get home, and a list about three miles long hits me as I walk through the door. And so I set up a courtroom scene in our living room. We brought out a table. I put on a bathrobe, brought out a meat tenderizer for my gavel, right? We brought out the little criminals, and we had, we had court. And my wife was the, the grand eyewitness, right? She got up on the stand and she testified to, to their, their heinous crimes, right? And I was a judge, brought down the gavel, and I passed sentence. I said, tomorrow, you guys are guilty. How do you plead? No, guilty? They're laughing like the game. I brought down the gavel. I said, tomorrow, we're, you're gonna, you can't eat anything except breakfast, lunch, and dinner, no sweets, no snacks, no desserts. And at the end of the night, we're going to sit down and have your favorite dessert, and you're going to have to sit there and watch us eat it. No, dad, no. I said, you know what? That's my judgment as the judge. But as your father tomorrow, you're actually free to do all those things. And I'm going to be the one who's not going to have any of that. And we're going to sit down. You're going to eat my favorite dessert while I sit there and watch you eat it. We're the guilty ones. You don't deserve it. That's exactly what happened. The next day, I refrained from all that. We sat down. We ate my favorite dessert as they sat there, and they watched as I watched. And they sat there with tears in their eyes, handing me their dessert. Please, Dad, eat, please. I said, guys, this is what God did for us. We broke his law. We deserve his judgment. But then Jesus came down. He took the punishment we deserve so that we can go free. Do you think they'll ever forget that, brothers? Never. My daughter called me the other day and asked me the details of that, and now she shared it with her children at the Christian school where she's teaching. <laughs> May we pass on a godly heritage to the next generation, brothers. May we recognize the call that has been placed upon our lives. May you understand the mercy that is available in Christ, that you can do that. It's not too late to begin, not too late to make it right. You just have to determine to do it. My God grant you the strength to do so. Father, thank you for your word. We praise you for it, and we ask in Jesus' name that you make us men who wake up today and recognize our calling to have an impact and an influence on the next generation. Help us to redeem the time, to recognize, Lord, this isn't a light thing. This isn't a, a random thing, but it is a part of who you've called us to be influencers in the lives of the next generation. May you do that. May you bring hope to America. May you turn our nation around. For the sake of your great name, in Jesus' name, amen. 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 God bless you guys.